You're listening to Doing It Right with me, Pandora Sykes, a podcast where I talk to experts about the myths, anxieties and trends of modern life. There's no such thing as the right life, but what might we be getting wrong? In this series, Series 3, I'll be exploring sleep, the science of emotions and fast fashion. And I'll be asking my guests questions like, is baby brain a real thing? Is everything we've been told about skincare wrong? And why aren't we talking more about dementia? This is a podcast that asks, what can we do to live life better? Not just for ourselves, but for everyone. Can the way you think about your body change the way it works? Can a positive outcome about ageing actually cause you to live longer? I've been curious about the mind-body axis for a while, and then I read The Expectation Effect by the award-winning science journalist and author David Robson about how our expectations can shape our experience, and I have not been able to stop thinking about it. And so I called David up, and luckily he was up for an interview. In short, using dozens of jaw-dropping studies throughout history, many of which we'll talk about in this episode, David explores how thinking a certain way about something can change the way your body responds. Now, you cannot think yourself fitter, happier and richer. This is not the secret. But you can harness the power of your brain's predictive machine, says David, to live a healthier, longer life. David and I discuss the power of reframing, the effect of placebos and nocebos, and the incredible impact of self-affirmation in young people and how it can shape their entire future. I hope this episode gives you some tools to take away too. David, thank you so much for coming on to Doing It Right. It's um, completely my pleasure. You know, I'm a big fan. I'm so excited to talk to you about the expectation effect, which blew my mind. So can you start by telling us what the expectation effect is? I define it as this phenomenon where we create our own self-fulfilling prophecies, three different mechanisms. Um, That's through changes to our perception, uh, changes to our behaviour and incredibly changes to our physiology. So changes due to the mind-body connection. Your book is all about how the mind shapes our health and well-being. And I was fascinated to read, and this explains that feeling of deja vu, that when you enter a room, your brain first builds a simulation of what it thinks is in the room based on past experience before overlaying it with the data from the retina. So keeping some bits that your brain predicted and discarding those that have been disproved by your eyes. How did you extrapolate out this predictive theory to the way we view our mental and physical health? Things like your mood and your attitudes and your beliefs are going to shape those simulations that you're building. We can see this in things like depression and anxiety, that all of the worries and concerns that people are ruminating about, that actually changes their perception of the world around them. So it does things like um, changes the way that you might pay attention to the faces in a tube carriage or, you know, at a conference if you're delivering a presentation, you're much more likely to focus on the kind of negative, frowning, potentially hostile faces, um, because it's building these kind of simulations where it sees the world as being a more threatening, dangerous place. What's also happening with these predictions is that the, the brain is based on what it thinks is going to happen next. It's then 
kind of preparing the body for the challenges that it thinks it's going to face. And that's going to change things like our hormonal balance, so the levels of stress hormones like cortisol, preparing you for a potential challenge or potential danger. So in all these ways, these simulations are having a a direct effect on our mental health and even our physical health. The book starts with an unbelievable story about a group of Laotian immigrants who began dying in their sleep in 1970s America. And I say unbelievable because it is really hard to believe. Can you tell us a bit about that story and how this idea of social contagion was foundational to your work on how expectation can shape behaviour? I mean, this story of the Lashen immigrants, it does seem unbelievable, but you really need to pick apart the kind of mechanisms that might have been at play. These were people that had moved from Laos um, during the kind of political upheaval of the 70s and 80s. They were of the um, Hmong ethnic identity and they moved to the US and they're facing huge stresses kind of integrating with the society there. But also they had started to abandon some of their kind of religious activities. They couldn't perform some of the rituals that were meant to protect them from all kinds of things like bad luck, but especially they had this strong belief in this dangerous demon, the Datsu, which uh, was allegedly would visit you at night, sit on your, your chest and kind of suffocate you to death. Now, what happened is that a lot of these uh, immigrants were dying in their sleep and uh, medical anthropologists and doctors linked that to this belief in the dark soul. These immigrants who, you know, weren't performing the rituals to kind of protect themselves really started to worry that the dark soul was going to come and kill them in their sleep. And that created this sense of panic before sleep. And that also led them to experience this sleep paralysis experience where people can wake up, but then they, they can't actually move their body. Now, that's quite a common experience, actually. About 10% of people experience it at one point in their lifetime. But what happened was that when these uh, Laotian immigrants were experiencing that, they really thought that the dark soul was you know, coming to get them. And it created such a panic that it, it could precipitate a heart attack. And at one point in the 80s, it was the leading cause of deaths amongst these uh Laotian men who'd come to America. So, you know, really significant cause of death. And it was a combination of the stress combined with this belief in the dark soul and then combined with maybe a genetic disposition for heart failure. And all of these things together had really created this danger for these people. And then obviously, the more it was happening, if you knew someone who'd um, who'd died in their sleep, apparently because of the actions of the dark soul, then you are much more likely to experience yourself. So that's the element of contagion there, that actually our fears and worries, these negative beliefs can pass from person to person and can be really dangerous for some people. Um, I'd just like to say that actually this, I think it explains, you know, some of the paranormal kind of stories that we hear from the past, like like you said, the Salem witch trials and hysteria kind of spread in that community. But we're certainly not immune from uh, these kinds of effects today, these uh, dangerous negative expectation effects. And actually, as I argue in the book, we have negative attitudes to things like stress, to certain foods, insomnia, all of these things could actually be damaging our health. There were so many studies in the book that left me speechless, like people with a positive attitude to ageing live on average seven and a half years longer than those with a negative opinion on ageing. It's very similar, actually, to, to what we just heard about the dangers of the dark soul. And it's that these um, beliefs are actually causing this kind of 
long-term stress that eventually adds up and causes tissue damage. So in the case of the people who were already um, suffering from cardiovascular disease, that kind of negative expectation that their symptoms were only going to get worse, that was creating a kind of quite high level of stress over the long term. That would do things like raise levels of the hormone cortisol, which we know chronically kind of high levels of cortisol can be dangerous. And that can also increase things like inflammation in the body, which can also cause damage to our tissues in the long term. And so it's the kind of build up of all of these events that eventually just weakens the, the body's health and makes you more predisposed to become ill. And eventually, you know, that can have a significant impact on your mortality. Are there limits to positive? I mean, that's an example of how positive thinking can extend your life. But are there limits to this thinking? And I'm, I'm thinking specifically of when my sister had cancer, I would get really cross at people who said that positive thinking or a specific diet could make her better. And I wondered, as, as a science writer, where do you draw the line at visualisation and medical intervention? Or is it more that you advocate for a combination of the two? I definitely think the expectation effect can never replace all of the conventional therapies that we have. I think with something like cancer in particular, there's no real plausible mechanism to me for how kind of having positive expectations and using visualisation could do something like reduce the size of a tumour. Um, it just seems too, too specific. And these chemotherapy drugs we have, there's no way the body can kind of produce them itself. So we absolutely have to be very honest about the limits of what positive expectations can do. Having said that, I think just because it can't perform miracles doesn't mean that it also can't be incredibly useful for our health and well-being. Like we saw actually reducing that stress that people experience after they've already had some kind of cardiovascular event, giving people therapy to kind of help to deal with the psychological consequences of that, that can be very useful. It's not a replacement for kind of the surgery they might need or the medications they might need to take, but it can certainly enhance that and improve their chances. And, and that's very much where I see the expectation effect heading in the future with all of this research. It's, it's really how it can we can use it in combination with, with the kind of scientific interventions that we're already using. And you clarify that the expectation effect is not about mere optimism you know you have no truck with new age self-help books as you call them such as the secret which has sold 35 million copies which promotes the law of attraction e.g visualizing more money brings you more money and you say that's mere pseudoscience whereas the findings in this book are all based on robust experiments and you say it's about expecting specific things not just a generalized positive thinking could you explain kind of the, the specificities of the expectation effects. I feel like that's really important for people to understand how they can apply it. We're talking about really solid foundations here. And importantly, I kind of hinted at earlier, is we're really talking about um, kind of expectation effects, but we know that there should be a good mechanism through kind of changes to the hormonal balance or changes to um, our blood pressure, the actions of the digestive system, all of these things that we know can be influenced by the kind of brain's workings. So I think that's one, one way in which I think it's, it has to be specific. I'm saying basically it has to have been tested and proven before we should kind of take action and try to change our expectations. I, I think this isn't just about kind of looking at the world through this kind of Pollyanna-ish view um, just being optimistic and always seeing the good in everything without acknowledging the challenges. Because 
this a research actually shows that if you just try to ignore the difficulties that you're facing, it, it's really impossible to to repress them entirely. And actually, they they almost bounce back harder the more you try to push them down. So the often the, the techniques that people use. Um, that I'm suggesting that people use to apply the expectation effect is, is not to just ignore the potential negatives that could happen, but to try to reframe the situation and try to look at it in an objective way, but uh, still have a positive spin on what you're seeing. So almost the glass half empty or half full kind of metaphor, I'm not really saying that we should do either. I think we should just accept that there's a certain amount of water in that glass and what the research shows is that denying your stress is going to be no good at all. Like trying to suppress that is no good at all. But actually just recognising that the stress is there for a reason and that it can have benefits, that actually it's an adaptive response, that taking that kind of more nuanced attitude to your stress, that's where you can um, have loads of benefits and actually that's where your stress can really start to help you rather than being a pure kind of hindrance to your progress. And conversely, if you're talking about how stressed you are is is that also the same as repressing it and that you're just making it worse yeah absolutely so you know ignoring stress is really bad for you catastrophizing your stress is like even worse for you you might be facing a kind of stress that is pretty hard to cope with but you're adding another layer of anxiety on that because you're not just stressed about the situation itself, but you start to become really anxious about your stress. I've been in this situation in the past where if I was giving a talk or presentation, mm. it's like I wouldn't just be anxious about the talk. Once I started to feel anxious, I'd start to feel anxious about my anxiety and start telling myself, you know, oh God, if I don't relax, then I'm not <laughs> going to perform well. Then it's going to be a disaster and then I'll lose my job. And it goes on and on in these ruminative cycles. What we need to do is break that cycle and remove that top layer of anxiety and just tell ourselves that actually, even if I'm stressed, actually that physiological reaction that I'm feeling to the uh, situation can be useful, that the heart is pumping lots of oxygenated blood to my brain, which is helping me to think more clearly. Temporary spike in cortisol is actually sharpening my thinking and keeping me on my feet so I'm not sleepy and drowsy and boring. And it's just acknowledging that as uncomfortable as it is, actually, there are these benefits that just taking that nuanced view, that's what's been shown to be really beneficial to improve people's performance in the moment and also to help them to recover more quickly from the stressful event afterwards in the minutes and hours and days after the event. It's really interesting here you talking about the anxiety you get about being anxious because that's, that's definitely something that resonates with me. And I read The Expectation Effect probably the best time actually for me to read it because I read it during a particularly bad experience with a gut disease and I had been obsessively ruminating on uh, how much was my stomach and how much was my brain causing the pain because obviously the gut is often called the second brain and as you say the brain is a prediction machine so if you predict a meal will make you feel ill which is what I was doing it will often make you feel ill but I didn't know what was my brain and what was my stomach and I it's sort of bound me up in knots a bit and I wondered what do you do when you're stuck in that trap because I know that you wrote the book after a period of personal turmoil and I wondered how you trained yourself to think differently to think okay well it's a bit of this and a bit of that and we're able to expect better. The big challenge of applying the expectation effect but the research shows it is possible to deal with those challenges that we're facing. Just a bit of background you know I've 
the idea for the expectation effect actually emerged when I was going through depression and I started taking these antidepressants um, and my doctor had warned me that they would, they could give me kind of bad headaches. And then sure enough, I was having quite bad migraines like every day. By coincidence, as a science writer, I kind of had been looking into research on the placebo effect and also a related expectation effect called the nocebo effect, which is opposite of the placebo effect. It's where negative expectations create sickness. While I was researching that, I actually discovered that a lot of the side effects of the pills that I was on could be explained by this negative nocebo effect. Actually, the doctor's warnings in many cases could prime you to experience those headaches. I just kind of relaxed into this possibility that maybe it was caused by the expectations that my doctor had kind of suggested to me. And actually, that was enough for me to kind of experience significant pain relief. And, and you know, the migraines went away pretty much by the end of the day. So I think sometimes it is enough just to kind of keep an open mind. I think we mustn't deny the possibility that there you know, could be a kind of biological reaction that alone is causing our pain. But we could also we can also just try to avoid that catastrophizing that I mentioned. Avoid like um, reading too much into what's happening. And the research shows that reminding ourselves that when we feel pain, it's not always a sign of actual damage to our tissues, that sometimes our nerves can just be overreacting. So we may not be in danger, even though we're feeling a lot of pain. You know, all of those kinds of steps can be useful. And then there's there are now cognitive behavioural therapy treatments for pain that really help you to pick apart you, your kind of thought processes when you're, you're going through pain and, and help you to feel empowered to control your pain. And that has been proven to be very useful. So it can be a slow process. I think the first, you know, the first step is to kind of take that open-minded attitude. If people are able to then kind of follow some kind of cognitive behavioural therapy that can really help them to kind of um, to make the most of that and to, to kind of deal with those thought processes. I really appreciated how you didn't dismiss psychosomatic illness either. I mean, quite the opposite. So even if something is, there is pain that is generated from your brain, you still have to take that seriously, you say. It's, you're, you're still in pain. It's not that it's just a mirage that you can wave away. Oh, that was a big challenge, actually, when I was writing the book to know how to, <laughs> how to distinguish the two. Um, so I, I kind of put it in terms of whether it's purely psychological in origin or whether there is a kind of direct biological effect that's causing your pain or in some way. And like you say, when, when the pain is purely psychological in origin, the trigger is psychological. Actually, that you know, that's still a very real pain. It's not imagined at all. And it's having physiological effects that are amplifying your pain. So in the case of headaches, it's doing things like changing the vasculature of the brain that kind of can create that feeling of pressure that often gives us the, the pain we're feeling. Um, it's also changing things like the uh, balance of neurotransmitters in your brain. It's when you're expecting to feel pain and you're fearful of your pain, that's um, causing the brain to release high levels of a chemical called CCK that amplifies uh, pain signals from your body. So it's almost like adding a loudspeaker amplifier to, to you know, those nerve signals that you're receiving, which is making them so much worse. All of these, we really need to change our attitudes to these uh, psychosomatic illnesses and we need to remove the stigma and taboo from them because... They're just a consequence of this prediction machine of the way that the brain has evolved to work. There should be no shame in them. They're 
just as natural as any illness that we experience. And I think we've made a lot of progress in removing the stigma from mental illnesses like depression, but actually we need to do the same for psychosomatic illnesses too. I really appreciate hearing you talk about it like that because I definitely got into a loop of feeling quite frustrated at myself, thinking, well, I'm in control of this. If I can just harness my brain, then I can stop maybe feeling the pain as much as I feel it. And also I think the danger, and it's something that I, I try to avoid in the book, is raising the hope that you can instantly make a huge change. I think what the research really shows is that actually it's a step-by-step incremental process. And like you say, it's, it's hard to change your mindset. And often we'll only do it going through a kind of journey where you're kind of each day you're learning to reappraise what you're feeling and change what you're feeling in just a slightly different way. You're relearning certain skills, certain like thinking patterns that will prove to be really useful eventually, but you can't expect that the pain will immediately go away on the first day that you apply that. I think that's something that hopefully will come across more when more and more psychological therapies are offered to people who are experiencing these kinds of symptoms, that actually it will be much easier for people to to access these beneficial expectation effects. So it's quite an intentional practice. I think it is. And I think it's something that you do, yeah, have to be conscious of like every day really is just reading about the expectation effect once. I think it will have like a, a, a benefit, you know, on the day, but it's not going to be a huge benefit, especially if you've been experiencing serious like problems like you've been discussing. And in the same way that I don't think we would expect to kind of go to, to therapy for depression and to be immediately cured on the first day. It's going to take a while. So I think it's something that we really have to work at. I really liked your idea of reframing that you mentioned earlier. And reframing is a well-worn strategy in marketing. For example, products are advertised as 95% fat-free rather than 5% fat. But you say it could have a real impact in the way that doctors deliver diagnoses to patients, which has a direct impact on their prognosis. And that reminded me of um, something that Wendy Mitchell, who I spoke to earlier in this series, um, she's got early age onset dementia. And she talked about how important she thought it was for doctors really to be trained in how they break that news because she was delivered the news like it was a death sentence. And she said how much more powerful it would have been to look at her life from then on as a different type of life, not the end of life. And you write so brilliantly about um, how reframing could have a positive impact in how long patients can live. Could you talk a little bit about how you think that could best work? In often in medicine, I think we're not sh- we're not told the kind of variability in in prognoses. Like no prognosis is going to be a hundred percent correct. It can vary wildly from person to person. So early onset Alzheimer's uh, disease, you know. the kind of progression could still vary uh, potentially years or decades difference between people. And I think that's really what the work on ageing kind of gets at, is that um, people's attitudes to ageing can be so important for their longevity. And in particular, um, it's really, you know, when people view ageing as just being this inevitable, quick kind of decline and uh, kind of fall into vulnerability, that that's when you're more likely to uh, to kind of die younger, you know, a seven and a half year difference in uh, lifespan compared to the people who take a more positive, nuanced view of ageing. So I don't think these people are 
fooling themselves into thinking that nothing will change as they get older, but they also recognise that there are many benefits that come with age. We know from lots of scientific research that things like um, you know, certain cognitive skills actually peak in our 70s, so things like our vocabulary range of expression uh, that we have, our decision-making, our general knowledge, all of those just continue to grow throughout our life. And actually, older people have been proven to be much better at making wiser decisions. And it's really just recognising that fact and recognising that you still have a lot of strength as you get older that seems to be protective. And the mechanism, I think, is very similar to the effects of stress on the people with cardiovascular disease that we discussed earlier. And the the thing here is that if you see ageing as being um, purely about vulnerability and decline, that makes every challenge you face feel much more dangerous. You know, even going to the shops, finding your way to the supermarket, going to see friends becomes, you know, quite scary as you start to wonder, you know, whether you're going to forget your way, whether you're going to have a fall. With these people who take the more positive outlook, it seems that they actually, they're buffered from that. So they don't have such a sharp increase in the stress hormone cortisol. They don't have a sharp increase in bodily inflammation. That reduces the kind of wear and tear on their tissues. And we can even see down to the kind of cellular level, actually, that these differences can be seen in things like the, um, they're called the epigenetic markers of ageing in the cells. It's like the biological clock is just ticking a little bit slower. Um, so yeah, I think that's that's what the research shows really, is that it's not just about kind of being purely as sunny and optimistic about ageing, but it's recognising that it comes with some benefits as well as some difficulties. And to, to kind of recognise the whole spectrum of experiences can be so important and then protective for your overall health. I mean, the subtlest differences can make a difference like this example that you give in the chapter the food paradox um which was one of my favorites the people who were put on a diet including a milkshake ate more because they associated drinks with less calories and therefore they had the expectation of hunger afterwards whereas the people who were given the same amount of calories in food ate less because they had eaten rather than drunk how do you think that this data could be used to combat obesity which who have described as an epidemic Mm, yeah i mean obesity really is an epidemic and it just seems there's no signs of it kind of slowing down i think this is hugely important because you know we underestimate the psychological influence over what we eat and i think when we do think of the psychology of eating and overeating we just assume it's a purely uh like matter of self-control and you know the way it's often portrayed is that people who um, are putting on weight, that they're just weak-willed. But this research really shows that that's not, not the case at all. So what's happening is that actually when people have this kind of mindset that they're indulging themselves, that they are having a treat, they can eat exactly the same foods, like you mentioned, but when, when they feel that they're having a real treat and a celebration, what you see is that the hormonal response to the food is completely different. So in one of the studies that I like to think of, it's um, people given exactly the same milkshake, no difference at all on two separate occasions. But when they were told it was this kind of luxurious, decadent milkshake with crammed of ice cream and full fat milk and, you know, with a delicious chocolate flavour, that they showed a different response in the hunger hormone ghrelin, which stimulates appetite. So for these people, the level of ghrelin was actually much 
um, it fell a lot more quickly after they'd eaten than for people who believed they were eating a health shake. Um, just the labelling of the food had changed that uh, hormonal response. Now, ghrelin fascinates me because it's also implicated not just in kind of triggering feelings of hunger and appetite and, you know, snacking later on, but it also can potentially change our meta metabolism. So it can determine how quickly we burn off the calories. And, and what seems to be happening is that when you feel indulgent and take a lot of pleasure in your food, you have lower levels of ghrelin, which means that you have a higher faster metabolism, so you're more likely to burn the energy you've just consumed. And when people are feel that they're depriving themselves because they're having health foods and they're not really enjoying what they're eating, the levels of ghrelin remain high, they have higher appetite, it's much harder to resist um, snacks when you're feeling those hunger pangs which are coming from this hormonal response and your metabolism is slower so you're not uh, burning off the calories. So it's the worst possible situation for dieters. I mean, I knew obesity was multifaceted. It's, it's obviously, as you say, it's not just about willpower, but it's also about the cost of food and who can access fresh and healthy produce. And it's about the time that it takes to prepare a meal and access. But also you said that higher levels of ghrelin was found in people in lower income families. And I had no idea that the hormone could vary in that way. Can you explain how that also forms another part of the puzzle that's kind of ignored when we talk about obesity? This new research really shows that actually the stresses that you're feeling when you're kind of low on income and low in kind of status in whatever way, when you don't feel that you have kind of power in your life to make your own choices, that that can actually change the levels of ghrelin. And, you know, this has been shown in kind of animal studies, in fact, you know, it's probably something that we find across the animal kingdom is that when you have a group of animals and you have some kind of individuals who feel lower in the pecking order, they actually have higher levels of ghrelin and um, tend to kind of feed up. And the reason for that is that they feel more vulnerable. So it's a kind of biological way of making sure that they get enough resources when they're available so that if they face scarcity later on, then they won't have to they'll have some biological reserves within their body that will help them to deal with that difficult period. And it seems that something similar is happening with humans, though of course we're much more complicated with the kinds of um, ways that we deal with these situations. But um, one study from South Korea, these uh, participants were, they were all basically of the same social class, but actually they were just given some feedback based on an IQ test about their prospects for the future. And some were told that they would, you know, rise very quickly in Korean society. Others were told that they were probably not going to succeed in the jobs that they wanted. They might face hardship later on. And then what you saw there was that you had a resulting difference in ghrelin when they were kind of ate a sample of food in the lab. And that's quite amazing that just, you know, this short-term intervention could have that biological effect. But I think the hypothesis here that seems very likely is that day after day, if you're feeling that kind of sense that you don't have control over your life and that you're going to face difficult periods in the future, that's going to change your biological response to food in the long term that may predispose you to putting on weight. This episode of Doing It Right is sponsored by Simply Roasted Crisps. 
crisps with all the flavor, crunch, and satisfaction of a normal crisp, but with 50% less fat, 25% less salt, and under 99 calories per serving. Now, I love a crisp, or 50. I like to think of myself as a crisp connoisseur. I won't bore you with my hierarchy of crispdom, but what I will say is that I have been historically skeptical of quote-unquote healthy crisps. It was a bad time for me when everyone was serving those root vegetable crisps at dinner. Anyway, I never believed a tasty crisp could be healthy until I tried Simply Roasted by the brilliantly named Mindful Snacker, who have spent 10 years honing their patented roasting process, which produces the only roasted potato crisp on the market. It's no surprise that these thick-cut crisps are award-winning. If you'd like to get in on the crunch, I have good news for you because Simply Roasted are offering 30% off your first purchase. Head to simplyroastedcrisps.co.uk and buy yourself a box using the code PANDORA30 for 30% off. That's simplyroastedcrisps.co.uk. Thank you very much to Simply Roasted Crisps. Slight side note, but what are the ethics of researchers telling some people that they're not going to succeed and others that they are? Right. I worried about this myself. Um, but typically in these um, kinds of experiments, the participants are debriefed afterwards. So the, you know, once they've collected all the data, they kind of sit down with the participants and they say, the results we gave you were a sham. <laughs> you, know, you don't have to worry. <laughs> You've got every chance of succeeding. Just forget what we've told you. It is a, an interesting question, but I think in most cases, you know, once you've been told the real purpose of the experiment, most people can adjust their expectations accordingly. I mean, this is absolutely why not only will I not take part in a research experiment, but I will never go to a tarot card reader because I just know that what they tell me, I would then apply or subscribe to that for the rest of my life. Yeah. Talk about an expectation effect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, actually, funnily enough, I did have my um, tarot cards read when I was like an 18 year old and it was a pretty depressing outlook, to be honest. I mean, it was just, we were just kids mucking about. So like, I didn't take it too seriously, but I did have that kind of doubt in my mind that what if I start to believe this? So I was quite conscious in just questioning, you know, whatever I was told. Going back to what you were saying about how poverty unsurprisingly negatively shapes expectation, could you tell us a little bit about the study? And I loved this. I'd love to think that key educators could could read your book and really apply this. But the study that looked at the impact of practicing, of students practicing self-affirmation in schools and the impact that it had particularly with students of colour. I mean, there's some great research on this phenomenon. It's an expectation effect that's often called the Pygmalion effect after George Bernard Shaw's play um, Pygmalion, where Eliza Doolittle is kind of groomed into being this kind of high-class lady. And the idea here was that actually our teachers are kind of doing, their, their expectations are shaping the way that kids kind of blossom in schools. And if, if a teacher has really negative expectations of a kid, they just assume they're not very bright. They transmit those expectations to those kids um, who then internalise them they feel that they've got less kind of self-efficacy, that they have less chances of success uh, later in life, and that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. They might make less effort, and, you know, the anxiety that it creates can actually be detrimental to their performance in exams. So that was shown in the 1960s in quite a small study, but it's been replicated now in much more modern studies. And 
they all showed that actually, sadly, a lot of these kind of implicit prejudices that people have around things like race or gender, they are often creating these self-fulfilling prophecies for these kids. It's just kind of making it much harder for them to succeed in school. Um, now, the, the good news is that there are lots of uh, kind of antidotes to this. And, and like you mentioned, one of the best ones is this process called self-affirmation, which I guess sounds a bit woo-woo, like I don't love the name, to be honest. Um, but it's really just encouraging these kids to kind of recognise that there's much more to themselves than just their academic results. So it gets them to kind of list some of the things they really value about, you know, themselves and their personalities. You know, whether it's their kind of musical abilities, their sense of humour, how loyal they are to their friends, whether they're good kind of children to their parents, you know, all of these things that just help help them to realise they've got a lot of resources. Um, and what seems to happen here is that those you know, once you've done that, it actually makes the challenge of the kind of academic courses that you're taking, just it puts them in perspective and makes you realise that actually you can cope with it, you can deal with, you know, with these tasks that might initially seem hard. And that seems to counteract this kind of negative expectation effect, the, the kind of uh, the weight of society's expectations on what you can achieve. One of the best examples of this was a series, a series of studies with um, African-American children, you know, following them from kind of middle school, I believe, right into university. And it found that practising this self-affirmation a few times a year improved their results in um, classes like uh, maths and physics and actually increased their chances that they would then go on to university afterwards. Hearing you talk about the impact that a teacher's belief can have in a student is not surprising in that we all know that feeling of having that one teacher who believed in you and so you believed in yourself but it's also really depressing to hear how much you can be sh a student can be shaped by a teacher not really thinking that much of them projecting that and then that could guide the way that they respond academically and and for the rest of their professional life or not even just professional personal that the outcome is so huge and i just find that quite sad that not everyone will get a great teacher who believes in them like you say, you know, this research has shown that it does have these knock-on effects that can reach right into employment. I think also what is quite worrying is that we might think of these kind of teachers conveying the negative expectations as just being kind of nasty, kind of bullying types of people. But actually a lot of them don't even realise the way they're conveying their negative expectations. And sometimes they might even be doing so despite being quite well-meaning people. So I, I think like a lot of the times when teachers kind of try to make a conscious effort to kind of um, portray their good faith in kids, that it might backfire. So, for example, if you assume that a, a student in your class isn't very good at maths, you might just be less likely to give them the hard questions because you don't want to embarrass them. But actually, all that's doing is kind of conveying to them your lack of faith in their abilities. Or they might give an answer that's not very well developed. And rather than kind of getting them then, pushing them hard to kind of develop their thinking, you might just kind of pat them on the head and tell them they've done well. You know, that's like depriving them of an opportunity to actually improve their performance. And also kids are just really sensitive, like they know when they're being patronised. Um, so in all of these ways, actually, these negative expectations can be conveyed even without the teacher meaning to convey them. To go back to health briefly, when someone is really ill, it's common to ask, what are my chances? Or for a loved one to ask, 
what's their survival rate? And and I've done that. I, I know it's tempting. Do you think that asking a doctor this uh, or discussing it when someone's ill can have a negative impact on prognosis? So no one's, I mean, it would be kind of really unethical to do that experiment, so no one's done it. But we do know in other areas that, you know, being told what to expect, you know, can affect your health. So I wouldn't be surprised if that is the case. If you receive like a negative prognosis, then could have a negative impact on their um, chances. But, you know, doctors don't want to be dishonest. And actually, it's really important that people do know the truth about their chances. I, I think there's no easy solution to this. But I, I think like maybe it's, again, it's all about the framing and the way that the doctor describes what you what you're likely to experience, because often there is a lot of variations. So for a disease like um, mesothelioma, which is the um, a cancer in the lining of your lungs, actually, you know, that's often portrayed just as a pure death sentence, because on average, the risk of surviving that is really low. But it depends enormously on your age and your state of health. People who are you know, younger, actually have a fighting chance of surviving it. And I can't remember the name of the scientist, whether it was E.O. Wilson or uh, David Sloan Wilson, but he wrote an amazing essay on this called The The Median is Not the Mean. And essentially, he was diagnosed with mesothelioma, but did his own research to look at what were the chances of his survival, given, you know, his characteristics, his age, his level of health, his underlying, you know, other conditions. And, you know, he found that actually the survival was much better than it had been originally presented to him. And then that in turn, you know, I think probably psychologically helped him to kind of deal with the disease and and gave him a bit more hope um, than, you know, he otherwise would have had. So I do wonder if there is a way that doctors could present the information that in a way that's not creating false hope, but neither is it kind of creating that sense of despair that may not necessarily apply to the person that they're talking to. Speaking of presentation, I wondered how do you deal with data bias or data interpretation? For example, I was talking about a book I love, Crib Sheet, the other day, which is all about making decisions about parenting based on data, not cultural myth. And a friend of mine said, oh, yes, but she's been found to have interpreted the data wrong. And I wondered is it that she's interpreted it wrong or is it just that there are myriad ways to read the data and her detractors have read it differently? As someone that uses lots and lots of scientific studies, how do you navigate data interpretation in your work? Science is kind of, you know, striving to come to an objective truth. But, you know, often each individual study could be interpreted in multiple ways. There's always going to be, you know, valid criticisms of a study that then you would hope to address with later studies. So I'm always quite cautious in interpreting, you know, a single finding. And in general, I try to look for, you know, bodies of research that um, where there's, you know, multiple lines of data from, you know, lots of different kind of uh, different methodologies, um, different groups of participants, you know, all of these things to make sure that they're all pointing in in roughly the same direction. Um, So, yeah, you know, that's what I would really be guided by that and guided by, you know, what the kind of experts think. I don't tend to veer very far off what the kind of scientists themselves are saying when they interpret their their own data. It is important to also recognise that there will always be debates around how to interpret data. And actually, I think it with the expectation effect in particular, I think we have to recognise that actually it's, it's not a kind of um, panacea 
in all cases. And I, I would say, for example, when we're talking about the the effects of the stress mindset and kind of seeing those benefits of stress. Now, this has been found to be useful in lots of different situations, but um, but there have been some negative results too. Negative in the sense that it didn't bring the benefits that were expected. And in lots of those cases, it was because maybe it just wasn't realistic that it could have had had a positive influence in, in those cases. For example, if you're studying students at... Um, in university, the research shows that the stress, positive stress mindset is going to be hugely beneficial if you have done the kind of revision and learning that's necessary to perform well in the exam. It's not really going to make much of a difference for someone who just hasn't studied at all, because then the barrier isn't really their anxiety, it's just the fact they don't hold the knowledge in their head. So that's what, I, you know, I think we have to recognise that actually there are limits to, you know, where these findings can be applied. And I think Often when we hear about kind of failed replications in science or there are these kinds of debates, it's often because people aren't really recognising that what works in one situation won't necessarily work in every similar situation, that there have to be kind of boundary conditions on when to apply that particular finding. I wanted to end on asking you for a couple of takeaways for people who are brand new to the whole concept of how mindset could transform your health? First of all, it would be, be prepared to challenge your assumptions. And if, especially if you're, um, you have lots of negative assumptions, like don't just automatically try to like uh, strive to have this kind of purely positive mindset, but just be prepared to just question the veracity of those negative assumptions. So kind of moving yourself to this kind of sweet midpoint where you're maybe neither positive nor, you know, overly negative. Um, just try to break that uh, catastrophizing kind of process that I mentioned. So you're not letting one kind of negative thought lead on to another, lead on to another, but just kind of question the kind of basic premise. Like, is it objective? Do I have a good factual basis for believing this? Or am I letting myself get carried away with this kind of unwarranted pessimism? I think that's a good way to start. Once you've changed your assumptions, like just pushing yourself out of your comfort zone can be hugely beneficial in kind of making those incremental steps and then reappraising, you know, what you've learned at each stage, but seeing whether actually when you've kind of given yourself these little tests, whether actually you found that changing your expectations was really useful. And, you know, I would say that's the attitude I took, for example, when I was dealing with um, a kind of fear of public speaking. So in that case, I really did try to kind of develop this kind of positive stress mindset where I recognised that my anxiety could actually help me to give a more energised performance. First of all, it was just, I just aimed to have that basic recognition that the stress wasn't purely bad and that it could also be beneficial. I kind of gave one talk trying to kind of cultivate that mindset. I found that it did actually help a little bit. Like I wasn't suddenly this kind of great, amazing, charismatic speaker kind of filled with confidence, but it certainly made it more pleasant and seemed to improve my performance a bit. And then I carried that to the next time I gave a, I gave a talk. And then the next time after that, and over, you know, over a few months and a year, I found that I was experiencing this really optimistic and, you know, exciting positive trajectory where actually I stopped dreading these talks and was actually looking forward to them by the end. And I actually felt that those feelings of anxiety, they were closer to excitement. And actually I was just embracing the challenge but that didn't come immediately. Yeah, I had to go for all of those steps, first of all, slowly pushing myself further and further. David, thank you so much for coming on to Doing It Right and talking all about the expectation effect. 
Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thanks so much. This episode of Doing It Right was hosted and exec produced by Pandora Sykes. Production is by Joel Grove. Subscribe now on any major pod platform to get the episodes as soon as they land. This episode of Doing It Right is sponsored by Simply Roasted Crisps. Crisps with all the flavour, crunch and satisfaction of a normal crisp, but with 50% less fat, 25% less salt and under 99 calories per serving. Now, I love a crisp. Or 50. I like to think of myself as a crisp connoisseur. I won't bore you with my hierarchy of crispdom, but what I will say is that I have been historically sceptical of quote-unquote healthy crisps. It was a bad time for me when everyone was serving those root vegetable crisps at dinner. Anyway, I never believed a tasty crisp could be healthy until I tried Simply Roasted by the brilliantly named Mindful Snacker, who have spent 10 years honing their patented roasting process, which produces the only roasted potato crisp on the market. It's no surprise that these thick-cut crisps are award-winning. If you'd like to get in on the crunch, I have good news for you because Simply Roasted are offering 30% off your first purchase. Head to simplyroastedcrisps.co.uk and buy yourself a box using the code PANDORA30 for 30% off. That's simplyroastedcrisps.co.uk. Thank you very much to Simply Roasted Crisps.